Hello and welcome to the June 7th, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of the new articles you'll find if you go to annals.org. Let's get started because I have quite a few timely new articles to mention. Thankfully, few clinicians practicing in much of the world have ever seen a case of monkeypox infection. However, a new, unusual, multinational outbreak of monkeypox is unfolding rapidly and makes it important to know what a case might look like so that appropriate clinical and public health actions can be implemented quickly. While monkeypox typically is transmitted to humans from infected animals, the current outbreak involves human-to-human spread. On May 24th, we published a commentary that describes how monkeypox spreads through respiratory droplets, close contact, and fomites, and the incubation period, 5 to 21 days, and the clinical presentation. Patients with monkeypox present with fever and rash that typically starts in the mouth, then moves to the face, followed by the extremities, including the palms and soles. Lymphadenopathy is usually present. Definitive diagnosis is via PCR testing of skin lesions with the test that is available only in public health laboratories. There is no standard treatment, but some smallpox antivirals have activity against monkeypox, but these two are available only through public health authorities and are usually reserved for severe cases or cases in immunocompromised persons. Fortunately, the current outbreak appears to involve a less virulent variant of the virus. As the epidemiology of the outbreak unfolds, clinicians who suspect they may have a patient with monkeypox should contact their state or local health department immediately. Next is a systematic review and meta-analysis of 38 randomized controlled trials that found that counseling patients about contraceptive use and providing contraceptives for patients who want them in various clinical practice settings increases contraceptive use without increasing the risk for sexually transmitted infections or reducing condom use compared to usual practice. Counseling and provision interventions also decrease pregnancy in trials designed to evaluate this outcome. At a time when abortion rights in the U.S. are threatened, provision of effective contraception to persons not desiring pregnancy is of utmost importance. The trials demonstrated the effectiveness of enhanced contraceptive counseling, provision, and follow-up services, providing emergency contraception in advance of a patient needing it, and delivering services immediately postpartum or at the time of abortion. Results showed consistently higher contraceptive use during the months following the interventions for adolescents and women compared to usual care or controls, such as receiving educational materials without accompanying counseling. Unintended pregnancy was also reduced in the few trials designed for this outcome. The trials also indicated no adverse effects of counseling and provision interventions related to sexually transmitted infections or condom use, although none evaluated additional potential harms such as anxiety, stigma, and reproductive coercion. I wrote an accompanying editorial in which I stressed the importance of the effectiveness of contraceptive counseling and provision at a time when Americans' access to abortion is becoming increasingly limited. Unintended pregnancy can have adverse effects on physical, mental, and economic health of pregnant persons and can also adversely affect their families. For this reason, contraceptive counseling should be a routine part of care for all clinicians when delivering health care to patients who may become pregnant. In particular, I urge my internal medicine colleagues to discuss contraceptive counseling with all patients capable of becoming pregnant or causing another person to become pregnant. As the pandemic of acute COVID infection continues, a shadow pandemic is in its wake. Many people report persistent symptoms after recovery from acute COVID-19, 
a condition commonly referred to as long COVID. Much about the biology, epidemiology, and clinical course of persistent symptoms is unknown, but the next article reports initial findings from an ongoing National Institute of Health study that seeks to answer the many questions about long COVID. In this report, researchers from the National Institutes of Health studied 189 patients who were at least six weeks out from laboratory-documented COVID-19 and 120 control patients to characterize medical sequelae and persistent symptoms after recovery from COVID-19. They found that 55% of previously infected patients experienced persistent symptoms. However, the authors caution that it is probable that their study overestimates the true prevalence of long COVID as individuals with persistent post-COVID-19 symptoms may have been more motivated to enroll in the study. The most common persistent symptoms noted in the study were fatigue, labored breathing, chest discomfort, parosmia, headache, insomnia, memory impairment, anxiety, and concentration impairment, Abnormal findings on physical examination and laboratory evaluation were uncommon and occurred with similar frequency in COVID-19 patients and controls. The authors also report that they did not find evidence of persistent viral infection or damage to tissue and organs in patients with persistent symptoms. However, those patients self-reported worsened physical and mental health and lower quality of life than either control participants or patients who had COVID but did not have persistent symptoms. And following publication of the NIH study, the American College of Physicians and Annals of Internal Medicine hosted a virtual forum where expert panelists provided practical advice for treating patients with post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. Current limited understanding of the pathophysiology, epidemiology, and course of this condition presents a vexing challenge for clinicians. The panelists covered topics such as treatments for symptoms, research, and the continuing need for vaccination. The forum was the ninth in a series of forums and was held on May 24th. A full recording of the forum is available on annals.org. The program began with a summary of the findings of the NIH study I just mentioned, followed by the discussion of three clinical scenarios of patients concerned about long COVID. The panelists then addressed questions submitted by attendees when they registered for the live virtual event. Dr. Alyssa Choi, internist and infectious disease physician in clinical practice and faculty at the Harvard Medical School and current chair of the ACP Board of Governors, served as program moderator. The foreign panelists included Carlos Del Rio, executive associate dean and distinguished professor in the Department of Medicine and Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine, Dr. Luco Hope, Associate Professor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine and the Medical Director of the Long COVID-19 Program at Oregon Health and Science University. Clifford Lane, Deputy Director of Clinical Research and Special Products and Director of the Division of Clinical Research at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And Dr. Lindsay Leaf, the Joseph Cohen Clinical Scholar and Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College and an associate attending physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. The panelists engaged in lively discussion about the importance of refraining from unfocused tests and therapies as this could do more to harm than to help. They emphasized that as we learn more about this condition, the most effective strategy for avoiding long COVID is to avoid acute COVID by getting appropriately vaccinated. The next article reports a population-based cohort study that found that patients with type 2 diabetes receiving first-line sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, or SGLT2 inhibitors, 
have a similar risk of stroke, myocardial infarction, and all-cause mortality, but a lower risk of heart failure compared to patients who initially start diabetes treatment with metformin. The authors also report that the risk for adverse events was similar except for an increased risk for general infections among patients taking SGLT2 inhibitors. SGLT2 inhibitors have demonstrated cardiovascular benefits in patients with diabetes, but have been largely recommended as second-line treatment. More recently, questions have emerged about their use as first-line therapy. Researchers studied 8,613 patients initiating SGLT2 inhibitors matched to 17,226 patients initiating metformin as first-line type 2 diabetes treatment to assess cardiovascular outcomes in the two groups. The authors found that patients initiating SGLT2 inhibitors showed a lower risk for hospitalization for heart failure, a numerically lower risk for myocardial infarction, and similar risk for stroke, all-cause mortality, and hospitalization for myocardial infarction or stroke compared to persons initiating treatment with metformin. Patients initiating SGLT2 inhibitors had a higher risk for general infections, but showed similar risk for other adverse events as patients receiving metformin. The authors note that while their findings may support the use of SGLT2 inhibitors as first-line type 2 diabetes treatment, further research is warranted to establish more robust evidence. Accelerated approval was created by the FDA in 1992 to give patients with life-threatening illnesses faster access to medications with likely clinical benefit while confirmatory trials are underway. While it was intended to fill urgent needs for the critically ill, the number of drugs in Medicare's accelerated approval program is growing. Between 2017 and 2020, a total of 87 drugs received accelerated approval by Medicare, accounting for 34% of all drugs that received accelerated approvals. The next article reports a study that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's accelerated approval pathway has led to Medicare spending of $1.8 billion in 2019 on drugs without confirmed clinical benefit. Researchers from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health evaluated 45 drugs associated with 69 accelerated approval uses or indications, but still lacked full FDA approval in 2019. The authors used data from a 20% nationally representative sample of Medicare fee-for-service claims in 2019 to determine Medicare spending on drugs with accelerated approval without confirmed benefit. The authors found that Medicare beneficiaries used 36 of these drugs across 55 accelerated approved indications, which cost $1.2 billion in Medicare fee-for-service spending. They also report that seven of these accelerated approval drugs were withdrawn from the market by manufacturers in 2020 or 2021. The authors note that drugs approved under accelerated approval require confirmatory trials to confirm meaningful clinical benefit. These trials often take years to complete, and drug companies have little incentive to complete the trials since accelerated approval provides a drug access to the Medicare market. The authors suggest that Medicare should change payment rates to incentivize faster confirmatory trials. Under the status quo, drug companies have little financial incentive to complete confirmatory trials that confirm a drug's meaningful clinical benefit. Next is a study that will interest coffee drinkers, whether they like their coffee sweetened or unsweetened, and may motivate those who don't drink coffee to consider starting to drink it. A cohort study found that compared to non-coffee drinkers, adults who drank moderate amounts, one and a half to three and a half cups per day of unsweetened coffee or coffee sweetened with sugar, 
were less likely to die during a seven-year follow-up period. The results for those who used artificial sweeteners were less clear. Previous studies observing the health effects of coffee have found that coffee consumption is associated with a lower risk of death, but did not distinguish between unsweetened coffee and coffee consumed with sugar or artificial sweeteners. Researchers analyzed data from the UK Biobank study, Health Behavior Questionnaire, to evaluate the associations of consumption of sugar-sweetened, artificially sweetened, and unsweetened coffee with all-cause mortality and cause-specific mortality. More than 171,000 participants from the UK without known heart disease or cancer at baseline were asked several dietary and health behavior questions to determine coffee consumption habits. The authors found that during the seven-year follow-up period, participants who drank any amount of unsweetened coffee were 16 to 21% less likely to die than participants who did not drink coffee. They also found that participants who drank 1.5 to 3.5 daily cups of coffee sweetened with sugar were 29 to 31% less likely to die than participants who did not drink coffee. The authors noted that adults who drank sugar-sweetened coffee added only about one teaspoon of sugar per cup of coffee on average. Results were inconclusive for participants who used artificial sweeteners in their coffee. An accompanying editorial by Annals deputy editors, Drs. Christina Wee and Dr. Eliseo Guayar, notes that while coffee has qualities that could make health benefits possible, confounding variables, including more difficult to measure differences in socioeconomic status, diet, and other lifestyle factors, may influence the findings. They also caution that the average amount of daily sugar per cup of coffee recorded in the study is much lower than specialty drinks at popular coffee chain restaurants, and many coffee consumers may drink it in place of other beverages that make comparisons to non-drinkers more difficult. Based on these data, clinicians can tell their patients that there is no need for most coffee drinkers to eliminate the beverage from their diet, but to remain cautious about higher calorie specialty coffees loaded with sugar. Annals publishes a lot of systematic reviews and meta-analyses. When done well, these reviews summarize what is known about a particular topic and are important in defining high-quality evidence-based care. But they are not easy to do well. As both the quantity of and methodologic standards and in research increase, conducting systematic reviews efficiently and accurately becomes more difficult. Risk of bias assessment is an important but resource-intensive stage of the systematic review creation process with a single assessment of one trial requiring an hour or more of a reviewer's time. The use of automation and machine learning has been proposed to assist this process, but uptake has been limited due to concerns about reliability. The next article reports a randomized controlled trial that found that using Robot Reviewer, an open access platform that partially automates risk of bias assessments to assist researchers in their assessments was non-inferior in quality to assessments conducted without using artificial intelligence. The authors highlight that if systematic reviewers consider integrating the use of robot reviewer into their work, the evidence from the study suggests that the overall quality of the resulting review will not be adversely affected and could be more efficient. An accompanying editorial urges the systematic review community to embrace the real-world use of semi-automated processes into their workflows and embedding evaluations to evaluate their effectiveness. Professionalism has been an established component of medical education for decades. In 2005, the Charter on Medical Professionalism published Medical Professionalism in the New Millennium, a Physician Charter, galvanizing debate about the role of professionalism in medicine. 
Today, governing bodies like the Association of American Medical Colleges require trainees to demonstrate competency and professionalism, and it is correspondingly a centerpiece of class oaths, course syllabi, clinical evaluations, and residency reference letters. A new commentary points out, however, that the concept of professionalism is not well-defined and argues that we need a contemporary definition to avoid uncertainty among medical students regarding appropriate standards of conduct. Approximately 100 million Americans are living with chronic pain. While opioids are frequently prescribed to manage chronic pain, they demonstrate little effect on pain overall and are associated with significant adverse effects. Cannabinoid products are a potential alternative and come from multiple sources, including synthetic, extract, or whole plant. The term cannabinoid references compounds that are active in cannabis, such as THC and CBD. These compounds have previously demonstrated pain relief properties that vary depending on the ratio of THC to CBD. Researchers from Oregon Health and Science University reviewed 18 randomized placebo-controlled trials, including 1,740 participants and seven cohort studies, including 13,095 participants, to evaluate the benefits and harms of cannabinoids for chronic pain. They found that synthetic products with high THC to CBT ratios were associated with moderate improvement in pain severity and response, but were also associated with an increased risk for sedation and dizziness. The authors also found that small improvements in overall function were demonstrated for products with comparable THC to CBT ratios but no improvements were demonstrated for products with higher THC to CBD ratios. However, the evidence for whole plant products, CBD, and other cannabinoids was limited by serious imprecision and lack of ability to assess consistency and study quality. The authors also note that reviewed studies did not evaluate harms outcomes, including psychosis, cannabis use disorder, and cognitive deficits, and studies did not include patients who are at higher risk for harms. The percentage of all opioid overdose deaths involving benzodiazepines increased from 8.7 in 1999 to 21% in 2017, and benzodiazepines were involved in one out of every three prescription opioid overdose deaths in 2017. In the next article I'll highlight, researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Boston Medical Center studied data from a national database containing prescription records from a sample of approximately 49,900 retail pharmacies that dispense nearly 92% of retail pharmacy prescriptions in the United States. In order to examine trends in patients receiving concurrent opioid and benzodiazepine prescriptions from 2016 to 2019 at national and state levels. The researchers found that the number of patients newly initiated with concurrent prescriptions declined 59% over these three years, and only accounted for 28.5% of total patients with concurrent prescriptions in 2019, indicating that far fewer patients started treatment with opioids and benzodiazepines together. According to the authors, their findings highlight the need for continued public health and clinical action, including greater adherence to evidence-based prescribing guidelines, more patient education, and alternative pain management options. They add that these data highlight the need for evidence-based protocols to safely de-prescribe opioids and or benzodiazepines for patients already exposed to these drugs. The last article to mention reports a secondary analysis of a randomized controlled trial that found additional clinical benefits 
of malnupiravir for non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. The primary reports of this trial, known by the acronym, the MOVE-OUT trial, demonstrated the safety and efficacy of the oral antiviral molnupiravir for preventing hospitalizations and death in non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Patients who received molnupiravir showed a shorter time to resolution for most COVID-19 signs and symptoms, a greater reduction in mean viral load from baseline, and a lack of safety concerns compared with placebo. Other endpoints not included in the primary report are reported here. These outcomes were changes in high-sensitivity C-reactive protein concentration, SpO2, the need for respiratory interventions, and acute care visits both unrelated and related to COVID-19. The researchers found that participants receiving molnupiravir showed faster normalization of CRP and SpO2 with improvements observed on day three of therapy. Hospitalized participants who received molnupiravir were discharged a median of three days before those who received placebo and acute care and COVID-19-related acute care were less frequent in molnupiravir-treated versus placebo-treated participants. Altogether, these findings suggest that molnupiravir may have benefits to patients and the healthcare system in addition to those identified in the primary report. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and please go to annals.org for a closer look at the articles I've mentioned. Stay well, and please return in two weeks for the next podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.